Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Oh, hi, Peter. Look, I'm just wondering about uh, what you're hearing about the property market. I know that um, if you watch the Channel 9 News on Saturday and, yeah. of course, uh, they've got now got a live report to the domain expert who tells you about oh. the auction results. Now, of course... Yeah. Uh, Domain, of course, is owned by the <laughs> Channel 9 Group. Only so, you would point that out, so but you're right. Yes. It's a, a traditional coincidence, but there's been a lot of hype around how the property market has suddenly yeah. uh, gone from rock-bottom despair to... Ooh, it's rebound a, time. A rebound time, and it'd be interesting to know um, just what is really going on, and I think uh, Margaret Lomas will be joining us today to talk, uh, give her insights into the property market. Yeah, exactly right. Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. One of the, I think she's one of the, the most astute property people in Australia. She didn't give us her view on whether the, the rebound is going to rebound back into boom time. Um, but uh, I think she's the right person to talk to. Yeah, I think she is, Peter. Also, I just know anecdotally, it still seems like it's really hard to get money from the banks. Right. And if you haven't got a really stable employment, forget it, right? So uh, I, I'm just uh, in two minds as to uh, just... You know, whether really there's been much for an ease up in some of the conditions. Yeah. We know interest rates have come down, but lots of other talk. I don't know. I just think maybe it's time for the market just to go a little bit quiet for a while. But yeah, well, I'm going to say one thing. I've got to be fair. I get stuck into all the uh, TV stations and radio stations and newspapers when the prices were going the way down, and they were excessively mm. hyping. They even even believing that 40% house prices were possible. So I guess on the flip side, now they're being excessively positive, and I think they are being excessively positive. I think the bottoming process is happening, but I do not expect a boom time. But we'll see what Margaret has to say on that subject. We'll be also talking to an interesting US company CEO um, of a company called Sezzle that listed on the Australian stock market. So it's a US company from Minneapolis listed on the Australian stock market, basically modelling itself on Afterpay. And um, the reason is Afterpay is kind of setting the standards for this unusual kind of lending business. Yeah, they're not going to be competing in Australia. They're actually, as I understand it, Peter, they're just operating in the US, but they chose the good old ASX yeah. to uh, to list on, which is a bit of, as you say, it's a, I mean, normally Australian companies go overseas, US companies coming to Australia is a little unheard of, yeah. but, but apparently we are the, we're the experts, uh, well, it's the Australian mm, the investors as the experts in after, mm. well, after pay type products. So, yeah. uh, look, that'll be interesting to hear what he uh, has to say. Yeah, and then we catch up with the CEO of the Australian Foundation Investment Company, AFIC. Yeah, look, our biggest listed investment company, our biggest broad-based investment company, been around for a long time. And, uh, look, one of the – I think they did a really good job in the whole franking credit debate. You'll, you'll remember that uh, mm. when that was quite hot in uh, – February, March, April, um, AFIC took a pretty big lead role in uh, in trying to defend the interests of, of people getting frank dividends. Um, yeah. So interesting to see just how they've gone and how they're investing. Yeah, exactly right. And and they were one of the, the on the forefronts of 
making it easier for people to invest in the Australian stock market without actually being an expert on stock. So that's Mark Freeman. We'll be talking to him uh, later in the show. But with any further ado, uh, let's go and talk to Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. Thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. So what do you make of the, the property price developments of late? I'm wary, Peter. I've got to tell you, I'm very wary because I would like to find a time in history where a capital city has come through a boom like the one that we had in Sydney and to a lesser degree but still a good one in Melbourne and then within 18 months to two years done a complete recovery and then gone back to boom times again. That's never happened and there's certainly nothing on my radar to say that it's going to happen now. We may have stopped the decline, but are we going into price rises again? Uh, I'd, I'd love to be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. So, Margaret, the normal scenario is that markets just go quiet um, with little price movement. Is that what, uh, whereas we're sort of hearing reports that uh, the, 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 uh, the collapse or the downward movement's all over, is that what you're thinking? Perhaps we're, people might just be getting a little bit excitable too early on this? I think they are in Sydney and Melbourne, and we have to remember the, the kinds of things that are going to drive growth. The first one is low interest rates, and admittedly, we have some really good low interest rates at the moment. Mm-hmm. But in Sydney and in the more desirable parts of Melbourne, we still have a mortgage repayment, which is considerably higher than what the average mortgage holder can afford so or what the average wage earner can afford. So at the moment, we're not seeing any increase in wages, as you know. We're not seeing any increased capacity of people to be able to spend more on a mortgage. The low interest rates are really just returning people to the point where they can now afford their childcare bill and their electricity bill. They're not at the point yet where they can afford a bigger mortgage. And so those things that traditionally drive growth, when you're talking about a city that's already established, so I'm not talking about an area that's going from sort of zero to hero because it's getting a lot of infrastructure and sudden population growth. Established cities like Sydney and Melbourne need some of those other fundamentals to be occurring before we get into those boom times again. So apart from the low interest rates, I can't see anything else that's going to create that situation. Do you think that there's another biggish leg down or it's sideways movements until we see wage rises and falling unemployment? I definitely think that in both Sydney and Melbourne. Remembering there are still parts of Melbourne, though, that are fairly affordable, and I'm really talking what the Melbourne people would consider to be their region. So parts of the beginning of the Mornington Peninsula, out toward Pakenham, where it was previously thought of, the Cardinia Shires, previously been thought of as being, you know, the regions, just like Gosford used to be considered the region for Sydney. But now with, you know, a good V-line train and plenty of good infrastructure and roads coming in, and that geographical or industrial centre of Melbourne shifting right out to the east there, out through Narrawarra and in those areas where we've got big population growth and a lot of blue-collar workers, then we've still got some areas around the outskirts of Melbourne that are still going to go pretty well, I think, and aren't going to fall in value. But we're talking about the main parts of Melbourne that people desire, the main parts of Sydney, definitely flat 
as far as I'm concerned, for a long time. And, of course, the danger in apartments at the moment is bigger than just the oversupply now with confidence wavering all over the place with bad buildings and cladding and, you know, a thousand things that make property investors think twice about whether they should be buying apartments. Now, another factor, Margaret's been the regulator, that's APRA's um, pretty strict controls about how banks could lend money. They've eased up a little bit, but from your experience, is it still pretty hard to get uh, actually get a loan at the moment? Very hard. Um, and this is empirical evidence from my own client base. If somebody's out to buy their first investment property, they've got their own home, they've probably got a debt still on that, they're out to buy their first investment property, the latest draft of changes has meant that they can probably borrow sixty to $80,000 more than they could mm-hmm. under the tighter guidelines. That's on their first property. Once they start to get a couple in their portfolio, it's still the same. There's been no real changes there. And that's a result of the fact that the way the banks are looking at serviceability, the three big problems are that, first of all, you now have to provide evidence of every cent you spend. You can't just say, yeah, look, you've got two adults and two kids in the house, so mm-hmm. this, is the, this is the average expenses. And so people are finding, especially when they've got those lower interest rates on their own homes, that, that their spending bills are too big and that that's blowing them out of the water. But the, the second thing is that the banks are assessing any current lo- lending that you have at principal and interest rates, even if you're not paying principal and interest, and assessing them at 2.25% higher than you've got. So you might have an interest-only loan at 3.5%. Mm-hmm. The bank's going to assess you as being at almost 6% with a P&I repayment. Now, someone who's got, say, three to four properties, that will then assess them as having around $80,000 more a year commitment than they really have. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of money if you think about that. And that's what's ruining it. And then, of course, um, rent. Some banks are now taking even less of the rent, down to 70% instead of 80% of the rent. And so you're really getting 100% of the rent. You're really only paying interest only at three and a half. But the bank's seeing that you're only getting 70% of the rent, paying P&I at nearly 6%. So it's very, very difficult. Margaret, let's go to some areas as well. Um, Perth. Uh, people have been telling us that Perth has been recovering at least for, I say, about 18 months. <laughs> Is it is it reco- recovering or what? <laughs> no, <laughs> not yet. Yeah. Um, but I've been hearing that for longer than that as well. Mm. If you wanted to buy in Perth now, I'm not against a buy in Perth, to be perfectly honest with you, and I think there's areas that you could buy in as long as your expectations are right. So if you bought in and around the airport there where the Forestfield link is going in, which is going to make the commute, past the airport and to the airport, really fabulous. So in and around Forest Field itself, which is probably only, uh, to be fair, a 20 to 25-minute drive in the city, there's some really good affordable properties there in the mid-300 range, and they're all tenanted or owned by um, middle management. So we're talking about people who aren't in the mining industry at all, but they're also not trades people, they're middle management. So we've got the right kind of family demographic in that area, and we're seeing a good rental yield of around about 5%. So if you're willing to sit with a good cash flow at the moment that's going to cover the cost 
of you getting in, then it will probably be amongst the first areas to begin the recovery. But I, I'm still looking at two to three years before you even start to see that, to be honest. And what about um, Brisbane, Margaret? Because, uh, again, that's another area where I think some of the data suggested a little bit of recovery. Is that uh, hard to sort of see Brisbane sort of putting on a, much of a rally from here? Yeah, look, the thing with Brisbane is Brisbane's very bitty. So it, it depends on what you're looking at. You've really got to drill down into that data. You can't just take Brisbane because if you look at the Brisbane data, it's actually showing not very good results. It's not showing bad results, but it's not showing great results either. So it's showing like a 0.1% quarterly loss in value. But that's taking into account a whole lot of things, including the fact that there's a lot of um, inner ring suburbs within five kilometres of the CBD in Brisbane that did really well about three or four years ago. There was a lot of demand for them. Because they were coming off a relatively low base, they went up fairly quickly, and now they're the ones that are starting to lose the value. You know, when people get in in the last, in the closing stages of a boom, and they all pay too much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then a year later, the figures start to report, and it shows a fall, but it's not really a fall. It's just all those people who pay too much at the end. But if you if you pulled apart Brisbane, what you would actually find is those mid inner and mid-ring suburbs around Brisbane are really flat and they're sort of a bit up and down. They're not gaining, they're not falling. The southern suburbs right down like halfway between the Gold Coast and Brisbane had a great run up until about two years ago and they're quite flat as well. But if you go to the northern suburbs up and around that Peachtree University development, and think about what's happening up there on the Sunshine Coast. There's a lot of medical facilities, big medical facility being built there. The uh, university in Petrie is going to have medical a medical school in it. There's a railway line that's being, being built with a stop in the university. And some estimates are that there's going to be, over a 10-year period, a creation of around 30,000 jobs as a direct result of that university development then we are seeing the prices at a lot of the suburbs up there, uh, Bray Park, uh, Sandgate, if you want to get closer to the to the coast there, up through Kalanga, even in so far as going, um, get starting to get up toward Deception Bay and Rothwell. We are seeing interest in those areas, and if you looked at those figures, they are actually increasing in value. Yes, you've, all, you've always been a Deception Bay girl, haven't you? Look, I have, but only because, and I think that window is definitely closing. Yeah. Uh, we've got quite a few clients who purchased Interception Bay around about two years ago for the low 200s, and all of those properties are worth well over 300 now. But more importantly, on the original buying price, they're getting about a 7.5% yield. That's pretty good investing, Pete. Mm, no, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's good to see you weren't wrong, Margaret, because all the people who listened to us would have followed you in and that sort of thing. So, Paul, is there any other question you want to slam Margaret with before we say goodbye? Well, look, I have to come back to, to Melbourne because I know that you've liked uh, tick down in the sort of the southeast or the outer southeast. Yeah. Uh, um, are you still sort of looking at that area, Margaret, or has that sort of had its sort of pick up and... Uh, okay, so so let let me preface this by saying I, I'm not predicting any booms there because I think if you wanted to get a really good growth rate, you had to get in when we first started talking about mm-hmm. it. Let's be honest, about three years ago, and anybody who did buy in around those Clyde North and those areas have actually done pretty well. Particularly people who bought bigger blocks who have been able to add you know a unit to the back of it and get that dual income. People have done pretty well. Frankston. 
I remember talking about Frankston the first week I ever did a show on Sky News Business, mm. which is now te- over 10 years ago. And Frankston did exceptionally well, doubled in value easily within that 10 years and some great opportunities there. But if you're going to buy in Melbourne, then I would still buy in that area because what's actually happening from a population point of view, it has the most concentrated population growth. It's also got the most concentration of families, and I always talk about families and how you know people move into an area, put their kids in school, and pretty well stay then until the kids are out of Mm. school. So they don't move around a lot. And if they do, they move around in the area, placing more demand on the properties there. There's also that big Monash employment lands there. That's going to go on for years and years to come and Mm. create a lot of jobs. And because of where that's situated down there near the Monash University, it then cuts that commute time. People can live down around those southeastern suburbs and get work without having to go all the way back into the city for it. So there's certainly plenty there to keep that clipping along. Um, and it would definitely be a place that I would invest. One last mar- one, Margaret, for a mate of mine who totally ignored all my advice, has <laughs> bought a high-end apartment off the plan in, Bris- in Brisbane with a really, really good developer who always fi- has the high-end finishes and whatever. Um, but we're talking probably a, an $800,000 apartment off the, off the plan around near the, the uh, casino uh, in Brisbane. What would, you yeah. have, what would you have said to someone like that? Well, first of all, I wonder if there's combustible cladding on the outside <laughs> of the building. That's the first thing that nasty, would worry me. Nasty, nasty. Well, go on. <laughs> the second thing that worries me, of course, is any of these high-rises now, they're almost all, or at least 70% of them, are showing some kind of building issue, which is going to cost in the long run for anyone who owns them. But the thing about properties in Brisbane is there's been an oversupply of apartments for quite some time. Most of that is around the West End and South Bank. Been an oversupply for quite some time. And people think that they can somehow gain immunity from this oversupply by going high end. But at the end of the day, in five years' time, that high end one where he's probably paid $100,000 extra for nice little bits and pieces and if he's going to rent it out, the tenant isn't going to care that much about that or as much about mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. He's probably paid $100,000 extra bits and pieces that actually won't add $100,000 to his bottom line. So what he's actually done, in my opinion, is he's reduced his capacity to obtain a capital gain from that by buying the high end because at the end of the day, if things are going to go up in the area, it's going to go up by, let's say it goes up by 5% on the average price of the property, not on every price range in that area. So his top end one isn't going to gain as much as, say, the bottom end one would gain in that area. I just think as an investor, you've really got to be careful about what you go for. You need it to be tenant-friendly, but you also have to really understand what features of a property you're buying actually add to capital value and what features just add to desirability because there's a big difference between the two. I guess he's hoping that gamblers will want to stay in his apartment. Uh, Margaret, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. That's Margaret uh, Lomaster, founder of Destiny Financial. And by the way, everybody, if you're interested, I have a new book on the market called Join the Rich Club. Paul, what, what a title. 
Look, it's a very imaginative title, Peter, oh, but oh. congratulations on the book and also on the name. Mm. And uh, I guess you can get it from one of our Switzer websites, can you? Exactly right. We're, we're aiming to be a, a digital disruptor when it comes to book sales. So if you go to switzerstore.com.au for the princely sum of $24.95 plus postage and handling, you'll get into your hands something that will make you as rich as Paul Ricard and Margaret Lomas. Okay, we're coming up now to our next guest, and his name is Charlie Uokum. He's the CEO of Sezzle. And as I said earlier, Sezzle is a US company that's listed on the Australian stock market and it's basically in the same business as Afterpay. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Charlie, I think the most important question is before I even ask, what does Sezzle do? The question is, why are you listing yeah. on the Australian stock market as well as the US market? So the main reason we're listing in the Australian market is because the Australian market has become somewhat an industry cluster around our buy now, pay later segment. And because of that, the investor here really understands the dynamics um, and the intricacies of our business. And I think that's the, that's the primary reason why we're listing here in Australia. Okay. So explain to my listeners what Sezzle does precisely. So Sezzle is a payment system that allows a consumer to check out uh, both alternatively online, but eventually online and in-store, and, and make a payment that splits the purchase up into four interest-free installments payable over six weeks. So in many ways, I'll say it, it, it's like a payment wallet. We'll store payment methods on file with the user. The user creates an account with Sezzle, and every time they check out with us, we make it easy for them to check out, but also help them with a little bit of um, purchasing power. We let them split that purchase over four payments. Okay, now I should reveal to you, Charlie, that I did teach Anthony Eisen many years ago, um, and Anthony, of course, was the founder of Afterpay, and so my question to you is, how does Sezzle differ from Afterpay? So I think we've taken it even a step further with the consumer, in terms of consumer friendliness. We've added a bit of flexibility to our platform. Uh, our, in our view, our user fees are the lightest in the industry. Uh, and we've done so on purpose in, in making this a consumer-friendly product because our, our view is that while it is a very consumer-friendly product to begin with, we want to take it to the point of social good and social impact um, and, and even take it beyond being a payment product and also help the consumer in the U.S. and North America get to the next stage of their financial futures. So helping them along that journey because we, we realize young people are primarily using our product so we view ourselves you know, a bit of a steward role, and we view the product as a training wheels for credit, and how can we help them today, but help them get to the next stage for tomorrow. Okay, so tell us what the history has been for Sezzle in the USA, first of all, and then tell us what you've achieved in Australia. Yeah, so thus far, we, we launched our product in August of 2017, and the uh, progress has been really fantastic from our viewpoint. We've added over 5,000 retailers to the platform. We have over 429,000 active shoppers on the platform. And that's just, you know, nearly two years here. So in our viewpoint, that's been quite, quite good. Uh, in terms of what we've accomplished in Australia, it's really, uh, yeah, the Australian side of things is really on the financing front for us in terms of growing the business with capital. Uh, we do have some retailers that are Australian retailers that sell into the U.S. and Canada, 
that are customers of ours. But primarily the main reason for the connection to Australia is on the, the financing front. Okay, so, but is the intention to be, you know, a competitor to Afterpay and Zip at, at the retail level in Australia? I would not say that's uh, a primary focus of ours. We're not going to make it out of the question, mm. but it's not something that we're actively uh, seeking out. Mm. When, when someone suggested to you that you should list in Australia and you made the point that we are an industry cluster, are you saying that, in a sense, Australia is ahead of the USA when it comes to understanding this kind of business model? Definitely. So I think Australia in general is ahead of the United States in payments as a whole. Uh, the ability to tap at a checkout, that's just coming to the U.S. And that was, that's been here for quite some time. The buy and pay later space is, I would say, another um, type of payment system that's well ahead here in Australia compared to the U.S. When we speak with U.S. investors, they're just learning about it. You know, even though it's, become, it's really starting to take shape there, um, the investor there is really just beginning to understand the business model, whereas the investor here in Australia completely understands it. So, Charlie, what do you think is going to be your competitive advantage in growing Sezzle in the USA? Uh, and I presume you're going to Canada as well? Yeah, so we've launched the Canada that started in April, and the growth there has been uh, pretty much in parallel to our growth in the United States early days. So we're happy with that growth thus far. Um, in terms of our competitive advantage, we think it's our viewpoint and understanding of the U.S. and North American consumer, and the fact that the U.S. consumer, especially a younger consumer, really does care about their credit score. They want to, to grow that credit score. They want to suit the next stage. Of course, they're looking for purchasing power for today, but our view is as we fold in other features within our products and help that consumer will start to become the same method of choice for them. So we, we, we foresee a future where our solutions become a Visa MasterCard you know, type situation. And in those cases, we want the consumer to choose us first. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you brought up Visa. And I've always thought that the, the great innovation that you guys have brought to the retail space has always got the potential threat um, if Visa actually just tries to copy you and, and do the same. H- how do you respond to that kind of concern by investors who might say, well, that's something that worries me as well? Well, in our view, Visa is a partner of ours, and they, they announced that uh, installments project that they're uh, moving forward on. And we don't really see that as a competitive threat. We actually see it as an endorsement of what we're doing and that installments are becoming the wave of the future in payments. If Visa were to launch that product, or they're on their way to doing so. But as, as they launch it, we believe that's probably going to be tailored more towards a long-term in- installment system that is interest-bearing instead. So if you're buying furniture at a store as you tap or as you insert your card into the terminal, the terminal would respond with an offer to allow you to finance that over, let's say, a 12-month period with interest. And so that's not really our space as a company. Mm. So it's not seen as a competitive threat to us, but more of an endorsement of installment space and the trend that's occurring. Okay, so when um, your rivals um, you know, developed in Australia, there was some um, fear for, from, from investors that maybe the government would come along and say, oh, no, you guys aren't exactly what you're saying you are and that you'll get a lot of young people into debt. 
do you worry that various states in the USA might have different interpretations about how positive and how contributive you are going to be going forward? You know, I think the U.S. viewpoint towards our segment is a little bit different than the Australian viewpoint, whereas in in the U.S. there are a lot of payday lenders Mm -hmm. that charge consumers upwards of 300% annually, and that's really the focus of the the financial protection companies or bureaus out there like the CFPB. They're really worried about those uh, groups that really take advantage of the customer. I think from the average U.S. viewpoint on our product segment, they view it as a positive thing. You know, we're giving the customer a chance to purchase something without any fees incurred upon them. And I think another positive about our product is that we make it impossible for a customer to get too deep into debt. One of the biggest problems with credit cards is that a young consumer that gets a little bit um, extravagant with their spending can dig themselves into a big hole that they can't get out of. And our product, one of the nice features about it is that we actually stop the consumer. If they run into an issue, uh, they get locked out of the product until they can catch up. And that really minimizes the, the possibility of, of big problems. And that's why I, I kind of call it a training wheels for credit, mm. because you can only get into so much trouble with it. Well, Charlie, you've had a nice start on the Australian stock market. I guess, have you had any affiliation with Australia until now? Um, not in particular. You know, we had seen Afterpay's early goings uh, with their business, and that really intrigued us with the model. Uh, my last company actually came out here um, in, in the early 2010s to take a look at whether or not we could launch our our products into that market. It was a, it was a payments company that did mobile payments for parking for transit. We chose not to go about that, but that was my last that was my last trip over to Australia. Okay, well, we're, we're glad that we've uh, responded positively to your innovation. We wish you lots of luck, and uh, thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Okay, it's time for us to invite you to our Switzer List Investment Conference in Sydney on August 16, Melbourne, August 20, and Brisbane, August 21. Now, we're pretty well close to being sold out in Sydney and Melbourne, so if you want to come, you're going to have to rush uh, and go to switzerevents.com.au. We still have some places left in Brisbane, and I'd love to see a lot of our Brisbane friends show up at the conference. It'll have some of the best speakers, uh, best fund managers and stock pickers in the country, Paul, won't it? Well, we'll do. One of the highlights is going to be uh, Jeff Wilson from uh, Wilson Asset Management, Peter. But yep. uh, a lot of other great uh, people there. And also, we'll be doing a masterclass. But as you said, you'll need to move quick because Sydney almost gone. Melbourne will go in the next couple of days. And just a few vacancies still in Brisbane. But uh, hmm. get, get moving if you want to uh, come and join us on Friday the 16th in Sydney, Tuesday the 20th in Melbourne and Wednesday the 21st in Brisbane. So just go to switzerevents.com.au. I'm joined by Mark Freeman, who uh, is a Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of AFIC, the Australian Foundation Investment Company. Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. So Mark, why don't you tell for people who don't know much about AFIC, what is the, the very basis of the company? Oh, well, look, AFIC is a, uh, it has a diversified portfolio of Australian equities. We, we've got about 80 stocks in the portfolio. Our approach is probably a little bit different to others in the market. We're a long-term buyer and holder of equities, so we're not trying to trade the market as it were. We're just trying to find companies that we think are great to hold over the long term. 
and we're looking to harvest the dividends companies produce. In that way, we are very low turnover. Um, we are very aware that tax can be a considerable drain, so we don't like turning over the portfolio and constantly realising capital gains. And again, that's probably a key difference to most fund managers in the market, which, which can be quite active. So uh, the, the other thing too is it's, uh, the, it's a very low cost. At the moment, the MER is about 0.13%, so 0.13, and there's no performance fees. And so, is, um, and and so how does someone actually make money out of investing in Africa? Well, we're obviously exposed to the overall share market. So hmm. um, um, when you look at the share market over, over the long term, um, it's always proven to be a, a great investment in terms of where you want to put your money. But in the short term, share markets can be very volatile. Um, so I think generally anyone going, anyone going in equities and the share market, um, you have to be patient. Uh, you have to look for opportunities of weakness to put more money in. Uh, but it's been proven over any time period if you uh, put money in for the long term into the share market, uh, you can make very, very attractive returns. And obviously, uh, dividends are a very important part of that and the system we have in Australia where you get franking credits as well, that is also hugely uh, valuable for long-term investors. So um, so we basically give investors that exposure to the overall share market but do it in a very cost-effective and tax-effective manner. Now, Mark, uh, Athic, of, of course, is a listed investment company. Can you just explain what that is and uh, how you operate? Sure. Um, well, our structure is a company. Most of the investments products to get exposure to equities are in a trust structure. Um, there is, I won't get into all the technicalities, but I guess with a, a company structure, we have shareholders. Uh, the assets we have in our company are the, the shares, the companies that we invest in. And so the shareholders um, own the company, they own the business. Um, and there's no management business sitting off to the side essentially managing the portfolio and extracting fees. The shareholders own the company. Uh, we're just paid employees to help run that and that creates that very, very low cost structure. And we can also um, manage the dividend flows we get out of the business. The trust has to pay out all their gains in one hit and that can create very volatile earning streams. Uh, we can make sure our investors get a, a smooth dividend profile out of the business as well. So, so, Mark, given the fact you hold 80 companies, one of the big surprises of the markets in recent times has been companies like BHP and Rio and the, and the big dividends they've been paying. Has that been a, a positive or a negative for your company? Oh, clearly, it's a positive because uh, we effectively are a conduit um, to our shareholders. So when we receive those dividends, the first thing we want to do is get it back to our our shareholders, and we did pay a special dividend early in the year, but obviously some of that was relating to our concerns around possible changes in uh, the franking credit rules. But uh, but any dividends that come in, we'll, we try and get them through to our shareholders. So uh, any company that's paying out large dividends or special dividends uh, with franking credits attached, um, um, they're very attractive. But we know that those two companies in particular are benefiting from a spike in the iron ore price which has been very strong, and that's a result of some of the supply coming out of the market from some very un unfortunate tragedies in Brazil and Vale's business there. 
Um, I think ultimately that volume will come back on and we'll see iron ore prices drift down again. But in the meantime, BHP and Rio are doing very well for that high iron ore price and producing extremely high profits, which they are doing the right thing, uh, getting that back to their shareholders. And Mark, can you talk about the things that uh, at a macro level, um, the changes in your portfolio over the last six to 12 months? I mean, we've gone from an environment where potentially back in December, people were talking about an interest rate increase in the US to uh, now we're seeing interest rates in the US come down. We've had two surprise cuts in interest rates here in Australia. Um, How is your portfolio? What are are the big things that have been happening to your portfolio over that period? Yeah, look, um, we're a very low turnover. So really, um, look, there are some transactions in each six months, but in the scheme of things, it's, it's very low. Um, our portfolio is very stable, but it, it has been an extraordinary turnaround. I remember going to the US back in October last year, and it was all about inflationary pressures. Um, costs were going up. Unemployment was very, very low. Um, cost pressures going up everywhere, and the Fed was in uh, the mood of tightening. Um, you look to where we are now. The Fed's cutting, we're cutting. And it's just a, an extraordinary turnaround. So the focus of the market now is... is and certainly where we sit is um, is always to be in the quality businesses. So companies that have a more stable um, revenue and therefore profit profile have been favoured. Uh, for example, if you look at the performance, we've got a big holding in Transurban and Sydney Airport, um, and the share price has been incredibly strong as, as, as investors have sought out yield. So this is a big issue um, at the moment for... Um, investors more broadly, it's where do you get yield from? Where are people going to put their money to get income? And this has caused money to, to flood into the share market, um, chasing yield. But um, the, the, the risk there is we've seen this acceleration in the overall share market. But I think people can be um, forgetful that when you're investing in equities, yes, at the moment the yield is very attractive, but there's still capital risk. Um, and you come in today, uh, for example, our market's down 1.5%. So those people that were investing in equities just to get yield, they need to think about um, the risk that comes with investing in shares as well because some of these prices have been pushed up very strongly. We're heading into uh, reporting season coming up, and we see the impact we have seen already. If companies come out with soft results or soft outlooks, particularly on or after a very strong period of share price strength, the market can be pretty savage um, in how they treat those share prices. So um, as per always, we're looking for quality companies, so companies that have a very strong market position. Um, we favour businesses that have where they can, a more consistent uh, earnings approach, and always a strong balance sheet. And again, companies that have weak balance sheets um, going into perhaps a slowing economic environment you always need to be very careful of those companies. Okay, so historically, what has been the typical yield that AFIC has paid? Yeah, look, um, our yield is probably slightly lower than the market. Now it used to be probably higher because in the past we always had a big exposure to the banks, always above market. We used to have perhaps more um, industrial companies that were more exposed to the domestic economy. A lot of those companies have gone out of the Australian market now. And, you know, when I look through our portfolio now, um, you know, our third biggest stock is CSL, which is a wonderful company. We're, we're glad we've got a big exposure, but you don't get much in the way of yield. 
um, there. So, uh, and then a lot of the other international sort of growth companies, uh, I think of something like ResMed as well, um, you don't get a lot of the yield there. So the yield probably at the moment is probably a touch under 4%, um, but we think about what it is when you include franking credits, and we'd be about in line with the market when you include uh, franking credits, so a grossed up yield. So it'd be a touch under 4% at the moment. And Mark, um, just coming to sort of the performance of uh, of of Afik and uh, your competitors in this space, it's it's been a tough market given that a lot of the gains have been in uh, some of the high flying technology companies. I, I guess they're not the sort of company that that you look to purchase. No, no. Well, we don't, and we never have. And you know, we're um, you know we're not out there trying to um, beat anyone in particular. We just want to have a, a portfolio of good quality companies, but certainly the likes, um, I, there is a terminology, I can't remember what people... Wax, uh, wax. The wax, that's right. <laughs> so I think that companies like Wise Tech, Afterpay, Appen, we, yep. we actually do have a little bit of zero that we bought quite some time ago, it's been yeah. a great investment, but we think there's something special about that company, but the, the multiples these stocks are trading on, you know, often, or some of them are around 120 times. Um, we think that's just extraordinary and, and we never put ourselves out to owning those types of companies. I think A2 Milk and you know, Bellamy is another couple in that situation as well. So um, we've always said that these high-flying ones are not for us. They, they come and go a bit. I'm not saying they're not bad companies, but just the valuations are very extreme. I think the other area that's been a drag on us too is not having exposure to gold, and gold has been incredibly strong mm. over the last few years, but we've always said gold is volatile, you don't get a lot of dividends, and if gold runs, then that's a drag, but we, again, we never put ourselves out as owning a lot of these uh, gold stocks and smaller mining companies, and we've probably been a touch underweight property trust uh, over recent times, well, uh, but, but these things are always go in cycles, um, and, but the cycles can be long, but... Uh, We've just got to stay true to who we are. Yeah, well, Mark, you were a chief investment officer. Have you ever, uh, ever encountered such a situation as investing with Donald Trump? Oh, I <laughs> know, <laughs> um, oh, but, but you have, you, you always have periods um, when there are dislocations going on in the market for whatever reason. And, you know, certainly I was around during the, the, the tech rally, now that, and then a the tech wreck. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't Donald Trump, but there was something going on that moved markets aggressively one way or the other, um, and that can be very difficult periods to navigate. And I think the more um, challenging thing or event that the market's trying to deal with is, is not just you know, what Trump's doing on, on trade, and um, th that has a big impact when you get multi multipolarity around the world. So that's when um, um, you have a, a range of global forces at play and the global economy is not dominated by one player in particular. So when you get multi-players, it causes these sorts of disruptions. But the other issue is, is just more broadly interest rates. And interest rates can have a big impact on how people value the market more, more generally. And um, that certainly is driving up some stocks as well. Um, but as I said earlier, um, low rates, you can say, equals high valuation on stocks, and that's got some merit. But then share prices get to a point where 
you have to think about the earnings that are coming out of these companies as well. So it's a very difficult environment. And, and like I said, then you get these sectors like gold rallying hard and um, there's a lot of moving parts in these markets. So I always get back to say, well, look, ultimately we're investing in companies and people. We just always need to make sure that the business we're in a good, sound businesses run by good people and you just hold throughout these periods of uncertainty. Thanks very much for joining us, Mark. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. That's Mark Freeman, who's the uh, CEO of AFIC. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Just before we go, Paul, you've always been very long stocks, but you haven't been long property. Are you starting to have a poke around auctions to see if there's something worthwhile buying? Look, I property's on my radar, Peter, absolutely. Uh, I'm not poking around at auctions, but I am potentially a buyer of property this year. Mm. And what kind of property are you looking for? Well, look, I'm, I've been listening to Margaret and others, and, uh, you know, I think uh, pretty wary about apartments, but if... if, if there was a distress sale. I'd probably start to look at it. Mm. Um, not really. I sort of want to get into property a bit more. I've got a couple of places, mm. but um, you know, it's probably a bit more opportunistic. I think, Peter. What about you? Um, I'm pretty long property. I'm, I'm quite happy with my portfolio, and I think I'm waiting to buy the stock market when it sells off a bit as well, Paul. Um, I think there will be a bit of a soft. We saw something happen today, and I think you know, once you hit all-time highs and you've got reporting season, you've got Donald Trump scaring the pants off people. I think there's going to be a buying opportunity. I don't think the bull market's over, so therefore I'll be just on the prowl for companies that look like good value. Okay. And that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.